Uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to continue now uh, as we kind of move into the series around uh, politics. We made it through last week. And as far as I know, there haven't been any church splits. Um, Dan, John, you guys know of any church splits? No. no. Cool. So that's good. So look, we ripped that bandaid off. We're all still here. And now this week, we're going to try and dive in a little bit deeper. And now, remember, the goal of this series is I'm not going to tell you who I'm voting for, nor am I going to try and tell you who to vote for. And I'm not even jumping into like the, the ABCs of how to vote, because some of that information is around. What I'm more concerned about are the the deeper underlying uh, difficulties, the reasons why we say you shouldn't talk about religion or politics. It's because we're not even good at having those conversations. So this series, rather than looking at the surface stuff, we're trying to dig down into the deeper issues that hold us back from faithfully engaging with one another and faithfully engaging in our city. And so today, we are going to look at what I think is potentially the biggest challenge facing uh, Christians and the world engaging in politics. And it's not, it's not the referendums. Often we can talk about the referendums as like, this is the craziest thing. We have to decide now because this is super important. No, nope, I think it's something more important than that. It's more than if labor gets back in or if greens get in or if national gets in and what are they going to do to tax policies? I actually think there's a bigger challenge facing our democracy and particularly us in the church that goes deeper than that. And essentially it's a challenge of polarization. Now, many of you, if you don't know what that word means, it's talking about this trend, which we see here in New Zealand, but we are also seeing in governments and places around the world, which is that little by little, we are being pulled more and more apart, and we are existing in these little groups and enclaves, and we are struggling to ever build relationships or build connections across the aisle. And now some of that will happen in, you know, like, parties and their policy. Some of that happens online, but also a lot of it happens at dinner tables. And this is one of my biggest concerns, is how we have families who once every three years it comes around to election cycle, this division begins to form within us as we realize we can't talk about this. I can't talk about this with my dad or my grandpa, or I can't talk about this with my son or my daughter. They're too stringent. I can't talk about this with my brothers or my sisters. That split that polarization is one of the biggest challenges facing us because we struggle to get through it. And if you keep separating from the people that disagree with you, then you only spend time with the people who agree with you, which makes you think more and more that the people who disagree with you are crazy or trying to destroy the country. And it really shuts down good, effective political debate. It shuts down good democracy. And honestly, it shuts down healthy churches. Because if churches get polarized, and if we get sucked into an us and them mentality, then we lose our ability to be a prophetic witness for the kingdom of God in our society. Does that make sense? So today, we're talking about polarization, its dangers, and how does the gospel call us out of it? Now, it's one thing to say polarization is bad, and don't do it. Go listen to other viewpoints. Stop living in an echo chamber. But that, I don't think that's particularly helpful None of us really on the surface want to be polarized. None of us want to be like, oh, I don't want to like anyone else. All of us like to think of ourselves as reasonable, middle of the road, nice, kind people. But the reality is there are bigger trends pulling us in these different directions. And I think it's worth exploring these trends and understanding them and giving language to them. And once we've understood them, then we can understand how scripture might present us a third way, an alternative reality and way to engage. All right, so this sermon, we're going to spend the first half kind of looking at the air we breathe, 
the wind in our faces around polarization, and then we'll look at how the gospel would have us interact with that. So, man, there are, uh, when I was doing research for this this week, honestly, there are books and books written, um, academic articles and journals, like there is no end to the research that's being built up around polarization, why does it happen? And uh, today I can't give you a full exhaustive list, but I wanna look at three trends that I think really affect us, particularly in the church. And the first one is what's called the information crisis. Now, if you've spent any time watching the news or spending time online or what, reading through blogs, you will know that in the last kind of three, four, three years, um, issues like fake news, uh, conspiracy theories, alternative facts, that has blown up in a way that 20 years ago would have felt really inconceivable for it to be mainstream. But nowadays, one of the biggest challenges that everyone faces is how do we even know what we know? How do we know what truth is? And how do we know that the other side is being fair? Or is that source that you just referenced to me biased because they come from this perspective so I don't have to listen to it? This challenge of how do we even gain knowledge is huge. And so part of it comes from, and I've shown you guys this graph before, but it's worth holding on to. Maybe Alex, we can go big screen to have them look at this. This is done by some researchers at Berkeley that tried to quantify the amount of human knowledge that has been created over time. So you can see on the graphic on the one side, you got 4,500 BCE. Um, that's kind of like the beginning existence of like the, uh, kind of secular understandings of man. And then from there, right up to about the age of uh, 2000, to year 2000, it's kind of like a slow, steady increase of in information. We get some uh, bursts around the invention of uh, literacy, written word, and then you get another boost around uh, the invention of the printing press when we could get words mass produced rather than hand copied. But this trend that has happened is like, up until about 2001, what is that? We have about three terabytes? No, three, bi three B, yeah. Three billion gigabytes of information, right? Up until that point, that's how much info we've put together in all of our recordings, all of our talks, all of our books, that much. And then the, these researchers at Berkeley realized that from 2000 to 2001, you begin to see a colossal shift. And that colossal shift comes with the rise of the internet. And then what you have is from the year 2000 to 2001, it doubles. And so maybe we'll come back on to me now, Alex. In that one year, from 2000 to 2001, we created as much information online as all of human history combined up until that one point. In one year, we created as much written word, videos, and text as everything else we had done up until that point. And then since 2001, they only measured it for about three years after that, it has consistently doubled. So from 2000 to the one, doubled. 2001 to 2002, doubled beyond that. And 2002 to 2003, it has doubled beyond that. And so we are exponentially creating more and more information. And um, Martin Gouri, who wrote a political science book around this kind of crisis that we're facing, he said like one of the things that even academics and researchers like him struggle with is as they're doing research, there is so much information, he realized that there's always another counterpoint, there's always another viewpoint. And so even when he was trying to gather information, he found himself uncertain and unsure because he thought there could always be another thing to be said. So he said this, when proof for and against approaches infinity, so if proof for and something approaches infinity, a cloud of suspicion about cherry-picking data will hang over every authoritative judgment. 
And so what he's saying is that since 2001, as we've created more and more information, there's so much info that we cannot control it all. There's too much to even know. There's too much to even learn. And so we live in an atmosphere of doubt. And you may have experienced this. Maybe you've been in a, a debate or discussion with someone and you set a viewpoint that you thought was really sure and really stable and they've been like, well, what about this source? Or they've linked it on a Facebook feed and they've grabbed from some blog you've never heard of a complete counter argument. You see that happening with the discussion around vaccines. We currently see it around the discussions around COVID-19. Because it's a new disease and information's new coming, it seems like if you want to find something that's saying COVID-19 is the most serious disease we've ever faced, you can find it. And then if you want to find information saying that COVID-19 is a hoax, you can also find it. And what that means is that's done a shift on all of us. Every single one of us now lives with a cloud of suspicion and doubt. And what that has meant is that in our society, when we talk about how, what matters, truth isn't as important anymore because someone can always try and prove your truth wrong from another source of information somewhere. And so truth doesn't become as important as much as identity and meaning. So that's the first trend, that we have an information crisis. There's too much to know and someone can always present you with an alternative fact. Now, the second thing comes right after that, and it's algorithms. Now, if you don't know what algorithms are, they are, think of them as like the magical fairies that work inside of Google to give you the information that you want. They are the mysterious little elves behind your Facebook feed that figuring out which content shows up as you scroll and which you shouldn't engage with. They are basically mathematical formulas that do what no human could ever do. They sort through the colossal tray of information. So Google is an algorithm that sorts through keywords through all the known text on the internet, and then it tries to pull out the most relevant information for you. And it's incredible. Like, how would we exist without Google? I mean, how would dinner parties even work if you couldn't pull out Google to prove your friend wrong about some stupid claim they just made, right? And so in some ways it can be really, really helpful. And algorithms can really help us to sort through everything. And we rely on them more and more and more and more. And even most tech companies, so whether it be Twitter or Facebook or even Snapchat, often the most valuable properties that they have is not just the media on their site. Their most valuable property is their algorithm that picks what information you see and how to get you to engage with it. And now algorithms, on the one hand, they can make us feel um, a bit misled because we think that when we type into Google, what's this? It will try and give us an accurate picture of reality. It will try and find the true information for us. But the truth is algorithms, particularly on social media networks, are not there to give you truth. They're not designed to give you objective, true reality. They are designed to give you what you will engage with most. They're designed to give you what you want. And they are looking for likes, they're looking for shares, they're looking for comments. Even on Facebook, as you're scrolling through, um, how long you pause and hold on a video, even if you don't enter into it, if it's automatically playing, how long you watch it is tracked and monitored and fed into that algorithm. And so Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Instagram, they're all designed very much to try and give you what will keep you engaged and clicking. And now that's different from truth. What we want is not often from what we need. And what happens is the algorithm begins polarizing us to give us more and more of what we want. So again, uh, this was from an American scientific journal 
uh, that did a study on Twitter, and this is uh, what they basically built. What they did is they built a, a study that looked at retweets. So in Twitter, if someone says something, you can share it as like uh, a retweet so your followers can see it. And they tracked uh, retweets of emotive, um, political, or moral language. Um, which is basically all of politics and feels like everything in the world nowadays because somehow it's all emotive, religious, and moral. Um, but they looked at who shared what from where. And so they looked at these in like kind of roughly conservative and then more liberal kind of groupings. And so apologies, this was done in America. So it's flipped um, when they have red, uh, it's over here. Red actually is conservative Republican and blue is Democrat, which is backwards from what it is here. So this is more right-leaning conservative. This is more left-leaning progressive. And what they found is when it came to tweets with high emotional language, uh, a moral language that would often be connected with a political post or issue, when people shared those, more often than not, they only shared things that came from within their political ideology. They shared people who agreed with them, their opinions that resonated with them, and that in turn linked to more sharing and more sharing and more sharing. And what you can see here are the lines of who shared from what. And same with the conservatives. Conservatives will share what conservatives say. And it builds this echo chamber and the algorithm realizes that people are engaging with that so it keeps feeding you more images, more posts, more news stories, more blog posts, everything. It feeds you more and more of that because you're gonna reshare it, which is what they think you want. And even there, you'll see in the middle, Alex, you want to go full screen here. Um, you'll see that there are some ties in the middle between the left and the right. Um, some of those are done in goodwill. You occasionally get people meaningfully and helpfully dialoguing with someone from the other side. But also they found a huge majority of those shares were actually done for like, um, how do you say it? They're like hate shares. Uh, you can come back to me now, Alex. They're done in a way that a progressive person could share a conservative viewpoint just so they could tear it down and then look really good by like smashing it. So even when we engage, we engage to build up group identity. We engage to build up our own ideas and the algorithm recognizes that. And so you may find that even if you're, uh, if you have a YouTube app on your phone and you're watching and you're engaging with that, if you start watching a political group that you really dislike and you kind of hate watch them to be like, oh, I can't believe they're so bad, they will keep feeding you more of that because they know you'll get engaged with it and you'll do the angry comments and you'll do the dislike button. So algorithms, the challenges, we live in digital worlds. Like that's just our life now. We live online, our world is shaped online and our perception of the world is shaped by these algorithms. And the danger is we often think these algorithms are balanced and neutral showing us the true reality of the world. They're not. Increasingly the algorithms themselves are polarizing us into our own echo chambers so that we only hear what we wanna hear. And we are creating that. So you have the information crisis. We don't know what's true. And then we have the algorithms polarizing us into these different spaces. And then finally, you have the challenge for media. Now, I can almost imagine there'll be someone like, Ken, you might be watching this and you'll be like, I don't understand half of that stuff. And you're not a Facebook user. And God bless you. May the, you're, you're so much healthier for it. Um, but the, the challenge of information and the challenge of algorithms has now affected also mass media. That would affect the news stations that we watch, that would affect print, uh, the newspapers that we read. They themselves are affected by this. And they're affected in this way. Um, previous to the internet, they kind of held the monopoly on information. If you wanted to know what was going on, you'd turn on the news at 6 p.m., right? 
If you wanted to get in-depth analysis, you'd watch QA or something on a, or the Sunday night program for that good depth analysis. And if you were really engaged, you'd go to the New Zealand Herald and this filled your perception of the world. But those mainstream media groups, they've had the same challenges as everyone else in the information overload. They are struggling to get airtime. There are a few uh, TV shows that do do fair and balanced news. QA still runs, but who watches it? Hardly anyone. That's the reason it has like these weird dead time, grave time slots. Meaningful, deep political engagement on prime time just does not happen because people don't engage with it anymore. We want stuff that's quicker and better content. And now there are some people who are running programs like Seven Sharp or The Project that are trying to do engagement with current issues and they do do their best. But the reality is that they are challenged by a format and uh, strings that are outside of their control. So say, for example, say Seven Sharp wants to do a discussion on euthanasia to kind of further the debate. They're like a half an hour program and they have three stories that they need to do. So if they want to give a big chunk of time to something, that's seven minutes. When you have bantering and then a few other things, that pulls it down to five minutes, which means you have five minutes of content. And if you're doing an interview, that gives you maybe like three minutes of answers. Euthanasia is one of the most complex debates that we are trying to face. And Seven Sharp, to try and do justice to it, will give you maybe three to five minutes of substance and content. There's just no way that can disciple anyone. That's, but that's what they're bound to. And then the, the reality is that they need eyes to watch their program. And so for them to get you engaged, they do better when they get sensational big headlines, when they push boundaries, when they get controversial, that gets more people watching. And so it often means that they'll get the most polarizing figure on to talk about an issue because that will generate views and engagement. Now that's not inherently bad, but that means that often you'll see, whether it's in the project or you'll see it on print, the headlines, the sources are getting more and more sensational. They're getting stronger figures because they're trying to shout through and gain access to try and keep their heads above the noise. Martin Gurry talks about this uh, in his quote. He talks about this problem. He says, the media's challenge, he says, is that the most trivial assertions must be attended with much noise and thunder. Absent authority, every message must be shouted to have a hope of being heard. Stridency, so like hard going hardcore and strong on every issue will infect every mode of communication. Just to keep an audience, politicians and commentators will have to scream louder and take more aggressive positions than the competition. And so this is what they're bound by. They are gonna have to get louder and more polarizing in order to get any airtime in the grand information pandemic and for the algorithms to pick them up to actually put them in front of your eyes. Do you see how it's like everything is pulling, is pulling, and it forms in us this identity and fear issue. And it comes down to basically this challenge, how that affects us. Now, I know that might've been a lot, but bear with me because it, it does actually have really big effects on how that interacts with us. If truth can always be challenged, and if algorithms are forming us into these group identities and the media is doing what it can to push us and it, the incentives push us there as well, what happens is politics then becomes less about truth, less about good policy for the country, and it becomes more about our identity, more about who we perceive ourselves to be. And then we fight and argue based on our identity. And that can be a dangerous place. Now, let me give you an example of what that means. Um, 
because I've seen this happen time and time again. Once we get polarized and we get stuck into our fields and becomes identity, this is how that outworks. Uh, imagine you're scrolling through Facebook and then you see this really well done, polished, uh, five minute video on the refugee crisis that was happening in Europe. And you see kids struggling, you hear about the numbers of people who are drowning and dying, and so you decide this is really important. So you click share. And beyond clicking share, you actually write a headline that's like, this is an atrocity. We here in New Zealand, we need to do our most to meet the needs of these poor refugee people, and we need to open up our doors to let them in. So you post that because you feel deeply about it. And then what happens is guaranteed, there's probably some uncle that you haven't seen in ages, or maybe some high school friend that you had a casual acquaintance with, uh, who suddenly jump onto your feed and they start commenting. And they start tearing that post apart. They talk about how it's emotive and how open borders will destroy New Zealand society and how we don't have enough money to pay for it. And you begin to feel pressured because this is your post. So you get on and you start keyboard warring and saying, no, this is super important. This is a key issue. And then you start fighting tooth and nail and you're ready to almost cut those people off. You block them, you unfollow them, you delete their comments from your feed because you don't like the way they've engaged with you. And you are ready to cut off a family member or a friend over a political issue that you didn't even care about 15 minutes ago until you saw it on Facebook and shared it. Why does that happen with us? It's because these political views are tied to our identity. Uh, Alan Nobles um, talks about this challenge and he says, uh, when we're overwhelmed by the infinite choices of belief that call into question our knowledge and belief, we find the ground to being in our choices, which is to say this, we may not know what is true, but we know with certainty that it's our task to choose what we believe to be true. And he get this, and that choice will define us publicly. That is, the end purpose of beliefs, the future goal we devote ourselves to achieving is actually the fulfillment of the self. When politics becomes identity, we're actually fighting about who we wanna be perceived to be. So you're sharing those posts about the refugee. It's less about actually helping the refugee or building substantive policy as much as it's often about being perceived as someone who cares about refugees. You wanna be known as someone who fights for them on Facebook feeds. But it is highly unlikely that your attitudes or your actions will lead to actual changes in policy for refugees. It's incredibly unlikely that the shares that we post and the fights that we get over at dinner tables and Facebook feeds will ever lead us to actually put in submissions to parliament, will ever lead us to actually advocate for funding policies and will do the hard work of cutting funding in other places in order to pay for those things. Often politics becomes an identity thing. We identify with our group, which we've been polarized into, and then we fight tooth and nail to defend that identity because it's important to us. And then that's where you get into these discussions where you see people fighting and they're not listening to each other. And that's because we're defensive because we don't want to be attacked. We don't want our in-group to be attacked and pulled apart. And so we defend it tooth and nail, even if maybe some of its positions are indefensible. Does that make sense? I know it's a lot but this is the world we live in and we could spend a lot more time talking through it and pulling out those different areas. But I wanna land with something, hope, hopefully something hopeful and something practical. Is there a third way for us? Is there a space where the church could be different? 
And I'm not saying that the church is particularly bad at this. This is just the air that everybody is breathing. Your neighbor, your parents, your grandparents. This is just the trends that are happening in America. They are happening in Britain. They're happening in the Philippines. They're happening in India. And they're happening here in New Zealand. Is there a third way for us? Thankfully, I think there is. And the reason that I think this is important is because, I, and I hear me, I really believe this to the core of my heart, is that if the church engages with the gospel faithfully, we could be a prophetic witness about a different way of being. When the world around us is getting polarized into fights, identity, and um, attacking one another, we could be a reconciling presence in the midst of that. So the first one is finding truth in our identity. Two things that are increasingly difficult to find in today's environment. And I want to look today at one thing that, uh, a couple of things that Paul does in the letter to, his Corinthian, to the Corinthian church. Now, Corinth was a crazy place, just utterly crazy. They had all kinds of baggage. It was a new city with new money and everyone was trying to get to the top. And what had happened within the church in Corinth is they were beginning to get polarized around these different followers. And one of the things that Paul's writing about, particularly in 2 Corinthians, is this split, this division that he's seeing. The church is saying, well, I follow Apollos. And someone else is saying, well, I follow Peter. And someone else is saying, well, I don't follow any of them. I follow Jesus himself. And then some are saying, I follow Paul. And they're getting fractured into these identities. And Paul has to walk into it and find some way to bring the gospel life back into this troubled Corinthian church. And when it comes to identity and purpose, listen to the way Paul describes his own ministry. He says this, for what we preach is not ourselves. What matters is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ Jesus. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is, what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So Paul has this crisis of leadership where they are polarizing and it's about identity. And Paul could have tried to reassert his identity as the super apostle over Apollos and Cephas and how they need to be loyal to him, which is what many of us would do in that political space. Well, I'm conservative and the liberals are trying to take over the country. Well, I'm progressive and conservatives are trying to take us back to the bigoted 1950s. We, we fight and we base our ideas and our identity around those things. But what does Paul do? He grounds that all back into the person of Jesus. The core thing for him is the gospel, who God has called him to be, and God is bringing light and life to the world. And so Paul's key first identity is a servant. He's just there to do what God has asked him to do. And that brings a lot of pain for him. He says there, we are wasting away. He's facing challenges. Corinth is yelling at him. They are tearing him apart in his leadership style. Does he reassert with strong group identity? No, he says, look, I'll take it. That's fine. We are struggling in all those things, but inwardly we are being renewed by the truth of where we are going. And then he says that key line, so we fix our eyes on what 
on not what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And the call for us as Christians is we need to engage in politics, we do. We need to have firm convictions about them, we do. And some of you might even go up and join a political party one day, maybe it be National, Labour, Greens, whoever. You may feel the deep call to go and participate and serve in that way. You should have those convictions, but your identity is not placed within those groups. You are called to a different kingdom. And so even if you may believe deeply in a lot of conservative principles, your identity is not bound as being a conservative. You can challenge the conservatives when they do wrong. You can feel free to welcome pushback because it doesn't challenge your identity. You know who you are. You are a follower of Jesus and you focus on what is unseen. So those little pushes don't matter too much. So ground your identity, not in these partisan politics as this or as that. Don't take it personally when someone challenges a policy of a party you care deeply about. Humbly listen and engage because it doesn't change who you are. You're a Christ follower. Hold your identity in that. The second one is calling us to be a reconciling presence. Paul then builds off of that letter in the midst of this polarized Corinth where they're following these different leaders. He then says to them for this. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we, were once regard, though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone and the new is here. And all of this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ and not counting people's sins against them. And listen to this, church. He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. The main challenge that I often find when we're talking about politics is that Christians, for some reason, once we start talking about it, we care deeply about the fruit of the Spirit. We do. We talk about it in church. We want that of our leaders. We certainly make sure our teenagers do it because if they start acting up, we're very upset with them. But somehow when it gets into politics, we forget those. We can be rude. We can be brash. We can hold our identities so strong that we push people away from us. And it's wrong. Like, it's, it's just wrong. You can have deep convictions, but if your convictions keep consistently be communicated in a way that isolates and push people away from you, you need to rethink that. Because beyond the message, Christ has called us to be a reconciling presence in our communities. So here's a litmus test. Here's a way to think about it. And a moment, maybe you need to look in the mirror. Ooh, this would be fun. If... Um, if the way that you talk about politics, if the way that you have engaged around political debates online or at your dinner table, if the way that you have done that has pushed people away, if you have done so so consistently in a way that you know that people around you will not talk to you about politics because it's just too hard and it's too difficult, if you have built that ethos around yourself, you need to take a pause and a look in the mirror. You can have deep convictions, but if you are communicating them in a way that continues to polarize us and spread us apart and doesn't form a reconciling presence of love with the person you're talking to, then you need to come back to the gospel. Because Christ has given us the ministry of reconciliation. And globally and nationally here in New Zealand, 
that is something that is desperately needed. Is there hope beyond polarization? Absolutely. And I've always said at church, I'm naive and idealistic. So a lot of this could fall on its face, just like most things at Golden Sand. So I apologize for this. I am naive and I'm idealistic, but I do have a dream and a vision of what our church could be. I have a dream and a vision of how the church could be a presence in politics rather than the church being another isolated voting block that people pander to to get our opinions, rather than us being the strident group that's always just shouting about the issues that we hate about. There is an opportunity for the church, both large in political debate, but also in small places at your dinner tables, in your marriages, on your Facebook feeds, we have the opportunity to be a prophetic symbol of the kingdom by being a reconciling presence, by being humble, by sharing our convictions deeply, but in a way that draws other people in, by seeking first to understand before we feel compelled to be understood. If we did those simple things, we ground our identity in Jesus, with great humility we engage and we try to reconcile all peoples from whatever side of the aisle they're onto, if we were able to do that, I have no doubt it would cause a huge shift, not just politically for the nation, but it would make a huge difference in our church. It would make a huge difference in this room, in this foyer when we talk about it. It'll make a difference in your families. It'll make a difference on your relationships. And that's what I care more about. More than who you vote for on the Saturday, I care that you are a witness to the reconciling love of Jesus Christ in any context that you were in. We have that opportunity, but it requires an identity rooted in Christ that is not defensive when our political views are challenged, and it requires a humility to listen and seek to understand, and above all, to long to reconcile the people in front of us to the love of God in Jesus. There is hope. There is potential, and you and me could be a part of that.